Um, anybody have that coach in your life? If you were in high school athletics, maybe college athletics, some of you might be more talented than I am. But I had that coach. I had Coach Mac. Coach Mac was the coach that terrified you. Coach Mac was the coach that inspired you. And he was the coach you did not want to disappoint. And I always knew when I disappointed Coach Mac, because it would sound something like this. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. <laughs> I was like, oh, here it comes. You know, like if I had not followed through and not done something, I would not used the form he had just shown me, whatever it was, he'd be like, Charlie, <laughs> we're going to fix it. Oh, man. Drop and give me 20. No. I mean, he was that guy, and I hated to hear Challenge, challenge. It was 30-something years ago. I can still hear that voice in my head. He's that coach. We all have those people in our life, right? They're these people that speak truth into our life, even when we don't want to hear it. Athletic coaches are supposed to do that. They're supposed to make sure you perform at a high level, you know, like our Bulldogs yesterday, right? But when we don't, they're also the same people that make sure we know that we don't or didn't. And I've had multiple guys like that in my life, not just my high school coach. I've had small group leaders in my life like that. I've had pastors in my life like that. And it's really interesting, though, that when we, in the rest of our world, outside of the spiritual world, we hire experts. You ever notice this? We hire a CPA to handle our taxes, you know? We hire nutritionists to help us with our diet plan. Maybe I need to do that. Like, we, we, we hire experts in every aspect of our life except spiritual. When it comes to spiritual life, we don't want our pastor going, Charlie, 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 <laughs> right? We don't want somebody to tell us, you did it again, you screwed up again, let's fix it. In fact, if we know we've messed up, what do we do exactly? We avoid church, we avoid our pastor, we skip small group, yeah, I'm just not feeling like church today. Why? Because we feel somewhat guilty, like, Yep, went off the deep end this weekend. I'm not going to church. I feel guilty. I feel bad. I don't want to, I don't want to be confronted. <laughs> I don't want to be told that I need to improve my spiritual form. But in every other part of our life, we have experts. We have downloadable classes on Facebook. We read another book on how to you know, win friends and influence people. Like we consult experts in everything. And then sometimes we consult the Bible. But sometimes we don't even want to read the Bible because we read the Bible and go, ooh, that's wrong? <laughs> ooh, I didn't know that. I don't, can't read that anymore. I might have to stop doing something I really enjoy doing. Because if I read this and it says I'm not supposed to do that, then what am I supposed to do? But people like Coach Mac help us make change in our life. Last week I said one of the marks of maturity is this thing called delayed gratification. You know, invest several hundred bucks a month for 30 years, and then you can enjoy it. You know, like this, this idea that we can't have it now, we got to do it. A six-year-old wants a honey bun now. A mature adult can delay that until after the sermon. You know what I mean? Like, we, we said that was a mark of spiritual maturity. Well, we're going to look at another mark of spiritual maturity in this never-ending work of becoming more and more like Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 4, and yes, this is a couple of the same verses I read last week, but that's because there's a couple of things in here, one I touched on last week and one I will touch on this week. This is Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. 
until all of us come, in, come to unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of, fulls, of the full stature of Christ, we must no longer be, taught, be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind and doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as part of it, as part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. All right, so same verses. And we talk about delayed gratification. I kind of said this verse is calling us. It assumes that we're supposed to grow spiritually. You're not supposed to have been a Christian 30 years ago and nothing changed. There's, a, there's, an, there's an assumed growth in person and character to become more and more like Jesus. And we talked about the fact that this spiritual delayed gratification is the ability to put the needs of others ahead of yourself. Right? Spiritual, deli- spiritual delayed gratification is to sacrifice for others. To give sacrificially, which might postpone your agenda. That is a sign of spiritual maturity. But there's another marker in here. And that marker is unity in the faith. Growing Christians who are becoming more and more like Jesus ought to be united. One heart, one mind, one faith, one baptism, even though we come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different preferences, different choices, different goals, everything. The goal, the marker of spiritual maturity is unity in faith. The church is supposed to be a diverse group of people together under Christ. Until we are mature into Christ. And what happens is we tend to worship by preference. Not by our goal is no longer unity. Our goal is no longer everybody together in one accord. First mention of a car in the Bible, by the way. There's dad joke number one. Right? If you go read Acts, it says they were all together in one accord. If i got to explain it, then you'll figure it out later. First mention of a car in the Bible. It's right there. They were in a Honda. Don't know how they got it, but they were there. It says the measure of a full stature of Christ in verse 13. The whole measure of fullness to, be, to a mature man measure. In other words, it says to be mature in Christ. Another word that word's translated, some of the other translations, is manhood. Now, that's not just a, like, men can only be mature. It's, this, I, it's an individual. It talks about individual growth, right? So our personhood in Christ is supposed to be mature. And then he follows that with, don't be tossed around by deceit. Don't be led astray. Grow in the faith so that you won't be tossed around like that. So you won't be deceived. So you won't be pulled apart. Because you see, the origin of our spiritual maturity and the goal of our spiritual maturity are both Jesus. It is because of Christ that we can move towards maturity in Christ, but the the goal of spiritual maturity is to be like Christ. He's the author of it, he's the perfecter of it, and he's the goal we're trying to achieve. So how would Jesus... If he was walking around Starville tomorrow, what would he look at church and say? 
unified, sacrificial, mature? What would he say? I'm guessing no on some of those, right? What are we doing? Where are we headed? It's to be like him. In fact, he has gifted people specifically in our lives to be Coach Mac to us. He's given people the ability to have the insight, to have the understanding to help us walk towards maturity. He's given us those people. Some of us are not those people. Some of us have been gifted with, hmm, I think you need to grow in this area. <laughs> Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. How are you going to grow? We're supposed to be unified. We're supposed to be not tossed around. You see, individualistic faith, this is my faith and you have your faith, is actually immature faith. If you read Ephesians 4 again, what is the goal? Unity in Christ. If you're like, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, then you're ignoring the goal explicitly stated in Ephesians 4. We're supposed to be together on this journey. We talked about that one week. We talked about it, the faith quest, right? Like Frodo. So we're in this journey. So that means if I'm making Christianity my own thing, practiced by myself, in my own quiet time, in my own space, I am more vulnerable to deceit and being tossed around by the things that I come up with. I'm in danger of being pulled apart from the body, which is counter to the goal of unity. If I'm separating myself on purpose, then I risk being deceived or tossed around by any particular doctrine or deceit that's in that passage. Growth is assumed. Now, for Christians to be unified, there's verse 15. This is where it gets hard. It says, speak the truth in love. Now, you've heard Christians throw that one around, right? I'm just speaking the truth to you in love, brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? Stroke punch. <laughs> you know, here's the truth about who you are. Pastor Jim the Hill this morning preached about the tax collector who goes, not the tax collector, the Pharisee who goes, thank goodness I'm not like that dude. He's a sinner, I'm not. I got it going on, right? Thank goodness I'm not like him. But somebody, but speaking the truth in love is exactly what it sounds like. We need to hear from each other where our blind spots are. And we need to hear it in a loving way. Because Christians can't coexist in the same body without being able to speak truth in love. Because what we've done is we've set up, we've, we've mastered the, hey, I like this style of church and this style of worship and this style of programming and this type of preacher. I'm going to go to church here. And that's not sinful. That's not evil. That's, you're going to church, <laughs> right? But the goal in, the, in Ephesians 4 was what? To grow in maturity and unity in the body of Christ, Right? And so what the church would do is they would, speak, they would practice speaking the truth in love and this thing we used to call church discipline. Nasty word. What is church discipline? Church discipline would be where the actual people in the church would call you on your sin. And if you refuse to repent, they'd take it to the pastor or to somebody else. And if you refuse to, to repent, 
They would take it to the whole church. Your dirty laundry for the whole church. And if you refuse to repent then, you'd be cut off from the church body. Whoa. Now, we don't practice that now, right? That's like a, lo- that's like a lost art. Because what would happen? If I call you on something, hey, I noticed last weekend, blah, 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 you're just not coming back over here. You're going to the next church down the street. We've got choice. We've got preference. We've got options. <laughs> we can go online to church. And not to be confronted by anybody. We can sit in the privacy of our room, watch church, and go right on sinning with nobody to call us to account for that. Church discipline was, we're trying to move you to maturity in the faith by speaking truth in love. Now, when this was happening in the early church, when Paul's preaching, it's not like you could drive 30 minutes down the road to another church. You went to church right by where you lived. You had to. No highways, no internet, no cars. It wasn't like you were going to get on your horse and ride for an hour just to go to church. Well, maybe you had to if that's what you had to do. But you couldn't just go, where's the other church to go to? Because they're calling me out. We get options. We get preference. We get to just not embrace being called out. We get to move down the street. But it's the ability to speak truth and love that allows a group of people who would otherwise not be united to be united in Christ. I may not like you. I may not agree with everything you say. I may not agree with your political positions. I may not agree with your choice in college football teams. If you're a star, well, you're in trouble. I may not agree with those things, but we still worship Jesus. And I don't mean like, oh, the pastor's going to confront me on my politics. I mean, we're different, but we can still be united in faith. That's what the passage was talking about, right? Spiritual discipline was for egregious, obvious, transparent sin. If you read enough of Paul's letters, you'll know that some of his letters were, hey, go discipline this guy. Like he literally says, if he won't repent, cut him off. This guy in the Corinthian church was like sleeping with his sister's mom, somebody. He said, cut him off because he won't repent. They did that. Now, what would that mean for somebody in the early church to be cut off from a family of faith in a culture that was otherwise persecuting Christians that you couldn't survive off of? You're struggling with stuff. The church was a body that supported each other and moved each other forward, not just spiritually, but even in the way that we lived, the way that we survived. Food. One of the church, early church evangelism strategies that we still do today on Wednesday night. You hungry? Come to church. We got food. They would literally look at the poor and say, you haven't eaten in three days? Come to Matthew's house. We're having dinner tonight. And then when he would come to Matthew's house and they would feed them for the first time in three days, guess what they told him about why they were feeding them? Christ would want us to do this. That's why we're feeding you. And so literally, being a part of a church was one of the ways that early Christians even stayed alive. And functioned, found work, found food, and were sustained. And so to be cut off from that carries a whole lot more weight than, yeah, I'm going to go to Facebook church today. I'm not going to listen to them anymore. And so it's harder. So what happens then? So we have to figure out if we're not going to have church discipline like that because it really doesn't have any teeth. Let's go to a different pastor. He doesn't know about my sin yet. 
<laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Then what do we have to do? We have to be faithful to Ephesians 4, where it says, speaking the truth in love. Because speaking the truth in love is how we grow into unity, and it protects us from deceit, especially self-deceit. One of the biggest barriers to our spiritual growth is we think we're okay. Now think about that for a minute. I could quote Jim's sermon again from Luke, 4, Luke 18, right? Thankfully, I'm not like that tax collector who's so bad. You know what I mean? Thankfully, I'm not like that guy down the street. Why is he so weird? Thankfully, I'm not that, like that person who's doing all that crazy stuff. I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm pretty okay. I do, you know, I go to church. I go to small group. I read my Bible. I'm in pretty good shape. Maybe that's true. But if that's your basis for salvation, you're not in good shape. And you're deceiving yourself. Scriptures even say, if you think you have no sin, then you deceive yourself. So one of the greatest dangers for our spiritual walk is thinking we're okay. We're not. Thanks, Charlie. This is an uplifting message. But here's what happens. When we have a body of believers, when we have a small group, when we have a Sunday school, when we have people in our life like Coach Mac who can see the parts of our person that's not pretty and speak that truth to us in love, what does that mean? That gives us an opportunity to grow that we didn't have otherwise. And so if I practice my faith all by myself, all on my own, what am I missing out on? My spiritual Coach Mac. Right? If I try to make my personal faith my own thing, I've got nobody to show me my blind spots. I've got nobody to call me to account. Because sometimes, I mean, honestly, we sin without even realizing we've sinned. You know what I mean? We didn't mean that offensive when we said it. We weren't trying to be hurtful when we said it. But it takes somebody else hearing it to go, when you said that, that did this to me. For us to know we did it. And if that person can't speak the truth in love to me, how am I supposed to grow in that aspect of my life? I can't do it by myself because there's nobody to speak the truth. The alternative is true too, right? Once I make those leaps, hey, you used to be kind of a jerk. Now you're not. <laughs> you know what I mean? When they say that, they're still speaking truth in love. This is not all about confrontation. It's also encouragement. Hey, you used to be this, and now you're this. God's doing something in you. Cool. So speak the truth in love is not always a hammer. It's the ability to be able to, in a group of people. And by the way, this is all directed at the church, right? Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's not like, go down the street and tell everybody how bad a sinner they are. That's not what this is. That's not what, that's not what church discipline is. That's not what speaking the truth in love is. Standing on a street corner in the district on a Friday night or a Saturday night and telling somebody how craven they are and how sinful they are is not what this is talking about. This is the church who knows each other and trusts each other, a body moving toward unity, demonstrating love to one another by speaking the truth in love. Calling sin, sin, but then in helping them to move past the sin. This is not a spiritual police department setup situation. Oh, you can't come to church, Seinfeld people. No communion for you. You know what I mean? Like, this is not, this is not that. This is, I want to grow spiritually. I need this input in my life. Otherwise, I won't know how to change. And then saying, I really do want to become more like Jesus, but I need help. 
Because some sin is so entrenched in our life, we can't get out of it alone either. The power of habit is the power of habit. What you did this morning to come to church, you've done 50,000 times. You don't even have to think about it. I get up at 6.30, I have my coffee, I have my quiet time, I get my shower, I get the, the order that I do my shower and prep time and go to church and drive over is a habit. And it's like when you drive somewhere, like home from work, and you don't remember the drive, your brain was completely turned off and you're like, how did I get home? <laughs> That's the power of habit. And that works when I drive home, but it also works spiritually. We're so ingrained in doing something a certain way that we don't even realize it's sin. We don't even realize we're doing it. And somebody has to help us step out of that when it's that powerful a sin. When it's that ingrained, when it's that entrenched. Awareness is a huge first step. But sometimes we can't get there by ourselves. Sometimes we have to get past it. And that takes somebody else walking alongside us and encouraging us. I want to give you a, a, another example from Scripture. I, I said that Paul called people out. Paul was pretty good at this, by the way. This is Galatians 2. Now, to set this up a little bit so you have some context, the Galatian church was a Gentile church, non-Jew. And the Jewish people are, and non-Jewish people are becoming Christians. And the early, this is the first big theological debate of the church. Well, do non-Jewish people have to do Jewish stuff to be a Christian? You know, we do dunk and sprinkle fights now. We do predestination, not predestination fights now. Back then it was like, do they have to get circumcised like us to be a Christian? Do they have to keep kosher? Do they have to follow Jewish commandments in order to be a Christian too? Because where did Christianity come from? You know, Jesus. Jesus was Jewish, a Jewish rabbi. And the faith was at the start was all Jewish until they started. Paul goes, hey, I'm going to the Gentiles with this stuff. And so Peter and a couple of the disciples have gone to this church to visit. They're spending time with Gentile Christians in the church. And Peter's going to Peter. <laughs> okay? It's one of my favorite things ever. Peter's hanging out with the Gentiles and living like the Gentiles until Paul and some of the guys from Jerusalem come down and all of a sudden Peter's like super Jewish. <laughs> Y'all know that person, right? On Friday night, they're one person. On Sunday morning, they're another. But on Friday night, they're being a Friday night person until they see their youth pastor or their pastor and they go, I was just here. I was just witnessing the people in the bar, I promise. You know, like, well, they all of a sudden they become super spirit. That's what's happening right here. Peter's hanging out with Gentiles and being Gentile, and Paul calls him out. Not that Gentile is sinful, but you'll get the idea once I read this. This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, actually it's Peter that comes, yeah, when, Pe when, Ce when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. Paul was such a gentle guy. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew live like Gentile, a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like a Jew? Paul's such a gentle soul, right? He goes, you were acting all Gentile until James came down from Jerusalem. Next thing you know, you're pulling yourself away and acting all 
When I noticed, what is Paul's words? When I noticed you were not living in a manner consistent with the gospel, I called him on it. In front of the whole crowd, hey, hey, Peter, what's your problem, dude? You were eating Gentile stuff and hanging out with Gentiles yesterday. Now you're not. <laughs> right? But what's Paul's concern? It's not that he was eating Gentile food or doing whatever they were doing. He was leading other people astray by being a hypocrite. So by not being consistent, by expecting Gentiles to, hey, become Jewish and do the Jewish stuff to become a Christian, he wasn't even enforcing that until the Jews went, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be calling them out on this stuff. And he does, he does the correction thing. Peter's like, Paul's like this, if you can't do it, why would you expect them to do the opposite? If you're sucked into the way they live, when, they're not, when the other guys are not around, how can you expect them to live in a way that's faithful with Christ? That's a call, that's, those are words to all of us, right? How can we expect somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't want to know Jesus, ex- understand what it means to be a Christian if we don't live like a Christian? If we're not consistent in our own faith walk, if we're not loving when we're speaking truth, if we're not gentle, if we're not compassionate, if we're not generous, if we're not all the things you read in the scriptures that means living in consistency with the gospel, then how can we expect others that who don't know Jesus yet to even understand what we're doing? And so Paul calls Peter out gently in front of the crowd. We need each other to be better together. Does that make sense? We can't do this on our own. Because we have rough edges we don't even know we have. And we need Paul's in our life. In fact, what you really need, this is from a friend of mine named Mike Mesker, you need a round table. You know what a round table is? Knights of the round table? Okay, there's the king, and the king had people. And at his round table, he had a few guys. He had a sage. King Arthur had Merlin, right? Like Gandalf, Yoda, if you're a Star Wars person. Yoda's the sage, right? The sage is the wise person in your life that asks you great questions that makes you go, I haven't thought about it that way before. You need somebody like that in your life. You need a person wiser than you that can look at your situation and go, have you ever thought about this? And make you go, oh, why am I still doing it that way? Why have I not thought about that before? That's the wise sage at your round table. You know what else you need? This is funny. You need a court jester at your round table. The one who points out your silliness and makes fun of you a little bit, and I don't mean is a bully, but I mean calls you on your stuff. The crap detector in your life. You say you love Jesus, but you need that person. I'm noticing this. You're Paul to Peter, right? You need somebody who's going, you say one thing, but you don't. You say you're losing weight, but how's that Big Mac taste? <laughs> you know, you need that court jester that's going to point that out. You're not living in a way that you, I'm going to write 500 pages a day. How many pages are written a day? You know, like, you need somebody who's calling you on your stuff and having a little fun at your expense. You look out, you know how ridiculous you look and you sound? <laughs> but who else made up the round table? The knights, Right? The knight is the person that leads the charge and encourages you. 
You need a sage that asks good questions. You need a court jester that will kind of call you on your stuff. But you also need people in your life that will champion you. That will come alongside you and help you fight the tough battles together. And you need all those people. Sounds like a good small group. You know what I mean? You need a group of people in your life that will do those things for you. Why? So that we can be unified, grow together in unity with Christ. So that we can become one body, one faith, one baptism, so that we can love Jesus better. We can become more Christ-like. We can become more spiritually mature because we can set aside difference through the unity of our faith. Because if delayed gratification, delaying your own agenda for somebody else's spiritual maturity, so is being able to be with and worship with people you're not exactly like. The culture teaches you to pick your preference. The gospel calls you to worship with people who worship Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, we know that your spirit is ultimately our round table. We also know that you have set it up so that we would be better together. Speak through our friends. Help us to surround us with ourselves with people who will help us to become more and more and more like you. Because we also acknowledge the work is never done until you return. So until then, we rest in faith. We entrust our heart, soul, and salvation to you. And we enter this journey together with you and with each other. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.